The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. If you would turn in your Bibles now uh, to Romans chapter 6. We're continuing in our series on Romans, and we've been here for a while, and Paul's at a transition point. So because it's a letter that's meant to be read at once, not a paragraph this week, a paragraph next week, a sentence the next week, a paragraph this week, and then again the same one the next week. That's not how you read a letter. You read it at once. And so I want to remind us of where we've been so far. Paul's introducing himself to the church at Rome, and he says, this is my message. I'm coming to visit you, and I want you to know something about me before I get there. My message is that the gospel of God, in it, the righteousness is revealed from faith for faith. And that's good news because God's wrath is also revealed against unrighteousness. In the rest of chapter 1, Paul says, who's unrighteousness? Well, at the very least, the unrighteousness of the Gentiles, of the pagans, the ones who exchange the glory of the immortal God for a lie, the ones who worship the created thing rather than the creator. Pagans, non-churched, people outside need the gospel. And the Roman church says, yes, absolutely, we agree. And we say, yes, absolutely, we agree. But then Paul turns and in chapter 2 says, religious people, You need the gospel as well. You who judge others, don't you do the same things that you judge other people for? You need the gospel. And so in Romans chapter 3, he reiterates, everyone needs the gospel. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None are righteous. No, not one. That's why in Romans 3, when he gets, but now, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's a huge exhale. It's a huge relief for us because of our hopelessness in Romans chapter 1 through 3. And Paul says, but now we are justified by faith as a gift. And in chapter 4, Paul talks about that justification, that it's always worked through faith, that Abraham, the father of religious people, was justified by faith. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And in chapter 5, Paul draws this contrast between Adam, who we're all born into, we're all born into sin, and Christ, the new Adam, who succeeded where he failed. And so we, when we're saved, are transferred from being under Adam, the old man, to Christ, the new man. That's his argument so far, and at this point he anticipates an objection. It says, if God is glorified in forgiving sins. Paul said, where the trespass increased, grace increased all the more. Grace increases when there's more to forgive. And if justification is totally free, why not sin so that grace might increase? Even more, are we obligated to keep on sinning so that God would be glorified by being able to show more grace? Listen to Romans chapter 6, 1 through 14, and see what Paul says in response. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him 
in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you this morning for your word, for the way that it answers our questions, for the way that it shows us what is true about you and what is true about us. As we look this morning, Father, at our death with you and our life with you, at our unity with Christ, Father, I pray that you would settle that deep into our minds. We ask these things in his name. Amen. So again, Paul's dealing with a misunderstanding of the gospel that says God's grace is so great and so free and so totally unmerited that once I'm in it, I can actually keep on sinning and God will keep being gracious and is even glorified more. Some people make this objection uh, out of fear. They say if we, if we really preach this gospel, if we really preach that there is total forgiveness of sin, that there is no sin too great, for God to forgive, that there's no penalty, then, then people aren't going to care about living a holy life. We can't preach total grace. We have to bring in the rules. We can't just preach grace. We need, we need to add law in there as well. Some people make this objection out of fear. But more often, it's a misunderstanding about the power of the gospel. And Paul's response shows that this is what he has in his sights. In verse 2, he says, Can we do this? By no means. In common language, are you kidding me? Seriously? Of course not. Paul is over the top incredulous that we would even consider this. And he goes on, how can we who died to sin still live in it? He's bringing in a new concept about salvation. So far in Romans 4 and 5, salvation has been something that happens around us, about us. It's a declaration over us. God says, you are forgiven, I declare you righteous, I declare you holy. But Paul brings it personal now. He says, we died to sin. Paul says the gospel is not something that happens around you, it's something that also happens in you. We've been declared free from the penalty of sin, and now Paul turns to talk about our freedom from the power of sin. And so for Paul and the rest of this passage, we'll see that it is inconceivable that believers will continue to live in sin because we have been united with Christ. Again, it's inconceivable that the believer continues to live in sin because we've been united to Christ. Now, from the outset, let me make clear, I said live in sin, not simply sin. The Bible makes it clear that believers still sin. The Apostle John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. True believers still sin. 
But what Paul is talking about here is an attitude towards sin that just doesn't care, that tolerates sin in our lives, a cavalier nonchalance about the sin that's still present in us. And for Paul, it's inconceivable that a true believer would continue to live like that because we have been united to Christ. We'll see three things about this union with Christ in our passage today. The reality of it, the nature of it, and then what it means to live out of our union with Christ. So first, the reality of our union with Christ. It's true of every Christian. Look again at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Baptism here is the mark of Christian conversion. And if you are a Christian, if you have been converted, you are united to Christ. It's a fact. It's the lowest common denominator for believers. If you've been baptized, you are united to Christ. It's not if you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for so long. It's not if you have this radical testimony. It's not if you're a preacher or if you grew up in the church. If you are a Christian, you are united to Christ. By using the language of baptism, Paul's referring to every single believer. So believer, you are united to Christ. He is in you and you are in him. You can say with Paul that my life is hidden with God in Christ. And when Christ who is my life appears, I will appear with him in glory. So first, the reality of our union with Christ is that it is true of every single believer. Second, it's true because of what Christ has actually done. Listen to verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul's arguments here and in other places in his letters and the rest of the New Testament don't make sense if Christ didn't actually die and wasn't actually raised from the dead. This might seem like a weird point to make, that Christ actually died and we're united with something that actually happened, but it's important because today many churches deny this. Some seminaries deny that it's required to believe in the resurrection to be a Christian. They say things like, I've never seen anyone rise from the dead, so I don't, I don't think it can happen. Or the laws of science tell me that it's impossible for someone to rise from the dead. And they think it's okay to believe that because in their mind, the important thing is that we follow Christ's example, right? I mean, we should be kind. We should be loving. We should be patient. We should go into people's houses occasionally and turn over tables, but we need to follow Christ's example. We should live in a way that he lived. Yes, Christ is an example for us. But don't forget Romans 1 through 3. We can't follow that example because we're in bondage to sin. Unless you're united with Christ's death, the example of his life is just another moral paradigm to crush you. Paul leaves no room for a metaphorical, legendary view of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So our union with Christ is real, is true of every believer, and is rooted in what Christ has actually done, in real historical fact. Westminster Catechism puts it like this. 
The union which we have with Christ is the work of God's grace where we are spiritually and mystically, yet really and inseparably joined to Christ as our head and husband. It's a spiritual unity, but that doesn't mean it's not real. It's a spiritual unity, but that doesn't mean that it's ephemeral or that it can be threatened or that it can be taken away. It is real and inseparable. Christian, you are really inseparably joined to Christ like a body is joined to its head. And we say to Paul, okay, great. I'm united with Christ. You made your point. I get it. I believe it. That doesn't actually answer my question. Should I keep sinning so that grace might abound? Paul turns here and turns from the reality of our, nat- of our union with Christ to the nature of it, what it involves. He says in verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. He gives this paradigm here for our union with Christ. The nature of our union with Christ involves being united to his death and being united to his life. First, his death. Look at verses 6 and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Paul says that we are united to Christ in his death. Our old self, our old pattern of living was crucified with him. It is dead. And to what purpose? Why? That we would no longer be enslaved. Do you realize that without Christ, you were enslaved to your sin? You had no control over it. It totally dominated your life. One of our church fathers says it like this, without Christ, we are not able not to sin. Everything we do is tainted by sin. It enslaves. But not anymore. If you're in Christ, you have died to sin. Your old self was crucified with him and you have a totally new life. This is why we say born again Christians because we have started a new life at conversion. Do you still feel enslaved to your sin, though? That habit you just can't quit? That sin that you just keep running to? You don't want to tell anybody about it, but you just can't quit it. It's like a mosquito bite you can't stop scratching, or a cold sore on your mouth that you just can't stop chewing. You know it would get better if you stopped, but you just can't. You're tired of it. You feel like there's no hope. You feel like you'll never be free of this sin. Christian, you are in Christ. You died with him, and the one who died has been set free from sin as a master. Again, Paul's not saying that believers never sin, but he's saying that we struggle against it. C.S. Lewis describes it as a river. The, The sin nature is the current, and when you're floating along with it, when you're going with the flow, when it's in control of you, you don't recognize it. You're floating on your tube, you have a beverage in your hand, life is good. You're enjoying life and you don't think about your sin nature. But in conversion, the Holy Spirit takes us and plants our feet on the bottom of the river. And all of a sudden, you feel that current driving at you. You feel your sin nature pushing against you. And sometimes it's strong. But the fact that you feel the current means that you're not being carried away with it. 
The next time you feel the temptation toward that sin, the next time you sense that old manner of disobedience creeping up again, remind yourself, preach to yourself, I am united to Christ. I died to this. And say to that sin, you are not my master. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. We are united with Christ's death. Even more than that, we're united with Christ's life. In verse 8, Paul says, if we've died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him. And in verses 9 and 10, he says, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Christ did not stay dead. He actually raised from the dead. He rose again in victory over sin, over the devil, over the grave. His death was once and for all. Look at verse 10, the past tense. The death he died, he died to sin once. It's done. It's finished. But now, progressive, the life he lives, he lives to God. It's still going on. Because of our union with him, we die to sin once. When we're converted, the old man is put to death and we die to sin. The rest of our lives is living to God. We begin a new life at conversion, not just an improvement over our old life. And the life we live now, we live to God. You say, okay, great. What does that look like? The reality of my union with Christ, I get that. It's true of every believer. It's true because of what Christ has done. The nature of my union with Christ. I'm united to his death. I'm united to his life. Paul, you still haven't answered my question. Can I keep on sinning so that grace might abound? He turns now and talks about what it means to live out of our union with Christ. And he still doesn't answer the question. First, he says living out your union with Christ means living out of a changed perspective. Look at verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. All along, he's been saying things like, you are dead to sin, you are alive to God, you have been crucified with Christ, the old man has been put to death. And in verse 11, he says, believe it. He's been saying, these things are true, therefore believe them. Remind yourself of it. Don't forget that. I worked as a camp counselor at a summer camp for a couple summers. Camp Sertoma on Lake Hartwell's Fair Shores near Clemson, South Carolina. Um, and if you've ever done something like that, you know that it's a lot of fun. Um, it's a lot of energy. Uh, it's meaningful and it's silly and you build really deep relationships with co-counselors and the other campers. Uh, high schoolers, college students, it's a great way to spend a summer. You're not going to make a lot of money. You might not make any money at all, but it's very, very much worth it. Um, but in week five, when it's August in South Carolina, and you're by a lake, and your co-counselor isn't pulling his weight that week, and you had to stay up late the night before because one of your campers decided he was done, so he's going to walk home from Clemson to Charleston. So he packs his suitcase, and he starts walking down the driveway, and you tell him the legend of the big dog at the end of camp that eats campers that escape at night, but you don't get to bed till midnight. And then at 3 o'clock, one of your other campers wakes you up 
because he had a nightmare and you have to convince him that no, there aren't monsters under the bed. And at 7.30, the wake-up bell rings. You go out for the morning song and you think, this is not fun. I'm not ready to deal with children. I'm not ready to deal with adults yet. But I have to, I have to be here and I have to be excited and I have to be enthusiastic and sing camp songs. And it's at that moment that some advice my head counselor gave always came to me. Act enthusiastic and you'll be enthusiastic. So you sing the silly songs about the Princess Pat and the Grand Old Duke of York and you wake up, you get some energy, you get some enthusiasm. And it's true, it's great advice for a summer camp. Act enthusiastic and you'll be enthusiastic. It's horrible advice for the Christian life. This is not what Paul says we are to do, but so often it's what we act like. Act enthusiastic and you'll be enthusiastic. Act confident and you'll be confident. Act like a Christian and you'll be a Christian. Brothers and sisters, that's legalism. That's looking at our righteousness for proof of our salvation. Paul says no. Paul says you are dead to sin and alive to God. Before he says whether or not we can keep on sinning, before he says anything to do in the Christian life, you are dead to sin and you are alive to God. Even if you forget it, it's still true about you. So don't forget it because it matters in the way we live. Because when we recognize this, when we get our mindset right, about our changed perspective, we'll get our actions right as well. Our changed perspective will lead to a changed allegiance. Look at verses 12 through 14. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Paul is very clear in this passage. Either we are presenting ourselves, our bodies, as instruments and tools for righteousness or for unrighteousness. There is no third option. There is no neutrality when it comes to God. If you're not in Christ today and you think that it's like deciding who to vote for for president that you can look and observe and and wait and delay and delay until it comes time to actually make a decision. It's not. God has sons and he has enemies. You're not riding the fence. You're not buying time to make a decision. You're on train tracks and there's a train coming. Either you are presenting yourself to God or you are presenting yourself to sin. But the choice to turn from presenting yourself to sin to presenting yourself to God should be an easy one. I mean, look at the options. Paul says sin wants to reign in you, to force you to obey its passions, to exercise dominion over you. It wants to consume you. But look at what God does. He's the one who brings dead people to life. Why would you not want to serve a God like that? Yes, he will reign. Yes, he will rule but he rules to give you his life. Sin wants to take your life. It wants to feed off of you. Christ gives us himself and says, feed on me. I call you today, turn from serving sin and serve God. This warning is just as strong for believers, though. 
I mean, the book of Romans is written to a church. It's full of believers, presumably. So we should ask the question as believers, what does this say to me? Again, sin's power has been defeated, but it's not totally destroyed. Paul says there's still temptation for the believer to sin. It's like a country that's been taken over by a foreign power and the native army has gone guerrilla. They hide. They attack weak spots. They don't come out in force, but they come out strategically. That's what sin does in your heart. That's what sin does in your life. It's still tempting you, trying to make you obey. But Paul says, remember, you are one who has been brought from death to life. Don't let sin reign in your heart. So hopefully Paul has made his point and and that it's clear. It's a misunderstanding of the gospel for us to continue in sin, for us to have a cavalier attitude towards sin in our hearts and in our lives. Why? Because believers have been united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. So how could we go on living like sin was our master? No wonder Paul says, of course not. Of course you shouldn't keep on sinning. Before we wrap up this morning, I want to make a final point of application by zooming out and looking at the passage as a whole. I said over and over that Paul doesn't actually answer the question until verse 12. There's no disconnect as we read if we go from early in 6 to verse 12. Paul could have said something like, should we keep on sinning so that grace might abound? Of course not. Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. There's no disconnect there. That, that actually answers the question. And that's what we want Paul to do, actually. We want him just to answer my question. Paul, can I keep on sinning? No? Okay, I won't keep on sinning. Paul, how do I fix my family? X, Y, Z. Paul, how do I fix my marriage? How do I stop being so angry? How do I love people more? X, Y, Z. We want these short, to the point, directive answers. But what does Paul do? Throughout this whole passage, he stresses the importance of the mind in the Christian life. Did you notice that as we were reading through? In verse 3, he says, Don't you know that you're united to Christ? In verse 6, We know that our old self was crucified. Verse 9, We know that Christ will never die again. And in verse 11, Consider, think of, have this mind about yourself, as dead to sin and alive to God. In this passage, Paul's not just answering our question about the Christian life. He's showing us how to answer any question about the Christian life. He's taking us through an example of applying theology to life. He applies theology about Christ. Christ will never die again. He applies theology about salvation. We're united to Christ. He applies theology about mankind. You are dead to sin and alive to God. And he takes these theological truths and narrows them down to the conclusion, don't let sin reign. My challenge to us this morning, are you able to do that? And if not, what are you doing to seek to honor God with your mind? We are very good as a church at honoring God by the way we live in community. We celebrate together really well. When I got to baptize Sophie a few weeks ago, I was overwhelmed by the joy and warmth that I felt from the rest of you, both during the service and afterward. It was a wonderful, sweet time of celebration. We encourage one another well. 
We are good at honoring God with our gifts, with our time, with our money. We hold loosely what God has given to us. We're good at honoring God with our voices. You guys sing really, really well. It's a pleasure to stand and not just hear the band up front, but almost not be able to hear them because you guys are so loud. It's a pleasure. I pray that our church would also be one that desires to know much about God. If that's a new concept for you, that that theology can actually be applicable to the Christian life, and you don't know how to start, uh, I understand. Um, It takes work and it takes time. Um, But talk to me, talk to Matt, talk to Tim, talk to one of our elders. We would love to point you in the right direction to pursue honoring God with your mind. But let us not forget the point. The point in verses 12 through 14, the conclusion of Paul's argument, is not just so that we know a lot about God, but so that we can take that knowledge and boil it down to things, positions in the Christian life. Christ will never die again. You are united to Christ. Therefore, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Brothers and sisters, we have been brought from death to life. Let us not keep sinning so that grace might abound. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word, for the truths that it shows us about you, about ourselves, about salvation, about Christ. Father, I pray that you would, that you would give us a desire to grow in knowledge of you, that we might grow in love for you, we might grow in obedience to you, that we might be able to serve you as one who has been brought from death to life, that we might present ourselves to you as instruments for righteousness. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for uniting us to his life and to his death. Help us, Father, to think about ourselves that way and to live out of what is actually true about us. We ask these things in his name. Amen.